0: Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode of the Badass Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox. Before I get started, I wanted to let you know about my upcoming webinar, 15 Common Errors in Query Packages and How to Avoid Them. It's happening on Zoom on Thursday, January 26th at 8pm Eastern Time. If you are getting ready to query agents or indie publishers this year, this is the webinar for you. I'm going to go over a ton of tips and tricks, as well as show you how to write a query and synopsis from start to finish with examples, and then we'll get into a QA and a afterward. You won't be on camera, so there's no need to change out of those pajamas or do your hair. And there will be a giveaway, so anyone who registers will get a chance to win a free query and synopsis critique. And if you're unable to attend live, you can still register and get the recording afterward. You can visit my website for more details at foxeditorial.com webinars dash and dash workshops. The registration link will be available on December 30th. Hope to see you there. There are so many interesting facts in the literary world, and today I cover a whole bunch of them as we take a look at a certain popular book that was published 150 years ago on this day in literary history. Through the Looking Glass was published on this day in either 1871 or 1872. Apparently it was listed as 1872, even though it was technically published 1871. So this was the sequel to, of course, Alice in Wonderland, and these stories were written by Lewis Carroll. Technically, the full name of the book is Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There. Alice in Wonderland wasn't even popular until after this sequel was published, and it had been published in 1865. Carroll uses different literary devices, such as frequent changes in space and time, mirrors, opposites, chess, etc. And in fact, chess plays a heavy role in the book, as does opposites. When you think of a mirror, you think about how what you see is reversed. So Alice climbs through a mirror and into the land beyond and everything there is opposite. Over the last 100 years there have been almost 20 screen adaptations and stage productions, as well as a few other adaptations. It's still a very popular story today. Most of us, I would bet, grew up watching one version or another and reading the book Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is one of the first books I can remember having as a child, and I think it may even have been my mother's before that. The mastermind behind these stories, Lewis Carroll, that was actually a pen name for Charles Lutwidge Dodgson, born in England on January 27th, 1932. He died 65 years later, almost to the day, on January 14th. Among other things, he was also a photographer, And young Alice Little, a subject of his photography, may or may not have been the inspiration behind at least the name of Alice in Wonderland. There is some debate on the similarities in character traits. The story that Carol told Alice during a boating trip later became the sensation Alice in Wonderland, so there must have been at least some sort of inspiration there. There is some speculation that Carol may have suffered from a type of oral migraine, and I don't mean oral like speaking, I mean oral like someone's aura. There are different types of migraines that exist that don't produce the pain. One of these types I've experienced a few times where there's no pain, but my vision is kind of clouded with what I can only describe as something that looks like bright, moving plasma. There's some colours there as well, but it's, it's very bright and very, like, white. Another oral migraine is actually called Alice in Wonderland Syndrome because it distorts how your brain perceives things, making things seem bigger or smaller than what they really are. Additionally, many people believe Carol suffered from epilepsy, although that was never officially diagnosed back then seizures caused by temporal lobe epilepsy can cause altered consciousness and these two conditions could have served as some of the inspiration behind the experiences that alice has in the stories aside from writing children's and fantasy literature and some other things one of the other genres listed under carroll is literary nonsense and i thought that sounded pretty well nonsensical but it's a lot more complicated than it sounds. There is a difference between literal and literary nonsense. The former being actual nonsense, things that don't make sense. The latter makes perfect sense, actually. It's balanced out by sense. It basically means that there's extra meaning um, and it quote-unquote subverts language conventions or logical reasoning. Most of us probably grew up listening to Mother Goose nursery rhymes. I know I did. I read them to my kids. My parents had them as well. That's an earlier version of literary nonsense. Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass are more modern examples, and of course by modern I mean not from the 1600s. Carol wrote a verse or a poem called Jabberwocky, which was present in Through the Looking Glass, and this later became known as one of the greatest examples of literary nonsense. He intended it to just be a verse about how not to write a verse. A sure sign of any serious writer, Carroll was one who had ideas come to him at all hours, day or night, like many of us. He actually invented a writing tablet called the Nictograph which was a very small device that he kept at his bedside to eliminate the need to get out of bed and go and, you know, light a candle and sit there and write out his ideas. So you basically jot down ideas using a dot and a symbol system. There was like 16 little squares in this tablet. I haven't figured out how it worked, but apparently it made things easier for writers back in the day. Something else Carol invented was an early version of what we now know as Scrabble, which I love. And you know that game where you replace one letter at a time with another one and you go from one word to ultimately a completely different word? And every time you change a letter, it still makes another word. Yeah, well, he invented that game and he called it a doublet. Carol invented all kinds of things, but those were of particular interest to the literary world. So there is your dose of this day in literary history. What sorts of strange experiences have you used in your writing? For me, I had a rather, mm, let's just say, eerie and possibly paranormal experience as a teenager that was kind of like sleep paralysis. The most terrifying thing ever. And I'm gonna be talking more about that on my friend Monique Asher's podcast, Stay the Night Pod, which she runs with her sister Katrina. And I'm recording that in the new year, so be sure to check that out to hear more about this experience. Anyway, this, I should say, string of experiences became my first completed manuscript and it's still kicking around. Needs some work, but it's still there. But the point is that I used a strange experience to inspire a story. And I think it can be really neat to explore any strange experience one might have. No matter the source, or even if you don't understand the meaning or the logic behind it, these types of things can make for great story material. And now on to today's guest. My guest today is Michelle Kemper Brownlow, also known as Shell Kemper in the picture book world. She's a lifelong artist and former high school art teacher who turned freelance writer and romance author while staying home with three kids. Michelle's novels include the Falling Forward series, Going Under, Reclaiming Grace, and Played, and a standalone novel, When I Lied. Currently, all of her books can be found on Amazon and anywhere you purchase books. So welcome to the show, Michelle, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So like I just mentioned, you have four traditionally published romance novels. Um, You're also now aiming to have picture books traditionally published as well as a YA coming of age story. So do you have the same agent for all of these different areas or is it a different agent for each?
1: I actually, my romance novels were contracted prior to me having an agent. So that was actually... All of those came through Twitter pitch contests, the contracts for those, which when Twitter pitch events were not so congested as Mm -hmm. they are now, so it was a little bit easier to get attention. But my current agent does represent adult through children's, so where some authors have to have an adult agent or because maybe they got their agent before going into a different genre. So I'm lucky in that she does all of them. So whatever I decide to do, <laughs> she, she does it. So I think currently my mind is, is sticking more toward children's. I think, I think that's where my home is. I kind of ventured off in the romance on a whim and loved it, but I, I have more very organic ideas in children so I feel like that's kind of where I'll probably stay.
0: Awesome and also you're an artist and illustrator so because your home you're feeling like is in children's books do you also illustrate them or, or how does that whole process work?
1: I, that's my dream so when I started which seems like a million years ago um, submitting picture book ideas it wasn't the trend to, for editors and agents to pick up an author illustrator. They wanted to pick up just an author or illustrator. And then there was something kind of magical and nuanced in how they pick the illustrator. They wanted to kind of hand pick, which was fine. I mean, that's, I understand how that works. And you're a little, you've got a little more freedom as an editor to put an author with a specific illustrator that you think would magnify the message of the book or something like that. Currently though, the trend is, in fact, there are many editors and agents that state they will only take author illustrators. So that's what my goal is. But I, in working with my agent, I've made it clear to her that if someone would like my story but is not necessarily drawn to my style of illustrations. I'm open, I love doing the art, but the story for me is is the part that's the most passionate piece, like the message I'm trying to get across. So I wouldn't, you know, haggle at all. I would be happy if they think they have an illustrator that has maybe a different style than what I do, I would be open to either. But currently she's marketing me as both.
0: Okay, you brought up an interesting point there. Because I mean, when you're doing fiction, they want something that's absolutely 100% complete and ready to go. But with children's books. So what do you think the reason is behind that? Why they they want to have their kind of imprint on on someone's work, whether that be the art or the the writing aspect?
1: It used to be the they were already working with illustrators within like a publishing house so their reasoning behind it was they could take a brand new debut author pair them with a well-known illustrator and they would probably amp up their sales get their book in front of more faces because people are recognizing the illustrator and that's what stops them in the bookstore or while they're scrolling amazon or something
0: right that makes so much sense because you yeah. don't see the words first you see you see the cover right exactly yeah. which is yeah.
1: why that's that's also where my thought process is if there's an illustrator that would catch someone's eye more than mine because mm-hmm. i'm i'm only just recently published as an illustrator but in small presses so there probably nobody in a bookstore at this point is going to recognize my illustrations
0: so can you tell us a little bit about the picture books that you've been working on?
1: Yes, I currently, I had taken a long break from submitting and all of that. And now I'm, I'm back in the game because now that I have an agent, I have somebody that I can say, this is the list of stories that I have, which ones do you think are timely, like that kind of thing. So I'm working on both older stories that I had originally come up with years ago but revamping them and making them more timely or using language that is more relevant as of late. But I'm also finding that that inspiration has me literally never ending stream of new story ideas in my head. So I also work with a book coach. So she's also helping me. So I tend to have not purposefully, it's just how my stories flow often it's neurodivergent characters or very um, whimsical, innovative characters. Like I have the one story that um, is from the past, but I'm pulling it back out is a little girl who has very strange things in her lunchbox. And it, it comes with recipes and, and kids can make these things that look a little like turtle toenail quesadillas And it's something that I used to make for my kids with no turtle toenails in it, obviously, but that's what we called it. And they thought it was so fun. So I developed a whole bunch of recipes from that and taste tested them on my children, (laughs) quite (laughs) honestly. Um, So I'm working on that. Um, But the most exciting thing that I had happened recently, um, well, came to fruition recently. Last year, Singer, songwriter Crystal Bowersach, who is a was a finalist, the runner-up on one of the seasons of American Idol. And her management team actually reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in illustrating a book for her that she had written. She had actually read a poem that she had written on TikTok and it went viral. And people kept saying, if you make this book, I will, you know, Mm I'll buy this. I have illustrated for a couple people who are self-publishing. It's not my favorite thing to do because I I always worry that I'm not I can't see what their vision is. Mm-hmm. So it's not of like they can't show me what's in their head. So I it's a little bit of a self-esteem thing. I worry that I'm not gonna get it just right and it'll be hard to translate what they're actually asking for. So I normally have like a canned answer when somebody asks me if I'll illustrate somebody's book. But when she said who this was, and she was my favorite of all of the American Idol episodes and seasons, I thought, no, I'll definitely do this. So we chatted on the phone and that book, it's called My Mama is a Rockstar, just went live on Amazon last week. So just in time for Christmas. And the other books are, are smaller, as far as you know, one is an, a Nittany Lion book where the author does the Penn State Nittany Lion stories. And so I've only done a couple of hers, but this is one that's gonna have more eyes on it than I'm used to having. So so that, that's been the biggest thing. And the other things are just in the works right now. There's a couple that are off on submission. Um, one is an ADHD squirrel who can't seem to sit still and risks ruining this big day in his classroom, and another one is an adoption story. Our youngest is adopted, and we wrote this story about matching heart colors, and that's how families know and children know that they're in the right place because heart colors match, so so those two are making their rounds right now.
0: That sounds amazing and so sweet, and exciting too, like that's- You know, you kind of have two different facets to work with there, which is which is awesome um, coming from the illustrative aspect and then the the writing. So that's that's really great. Just going back a little bit to what you were saying about having a list of stories. So this is so timely because I was just talking with a writing friend of mine who's working on a children's story when you pitched your idea to your agent who eventually became your agent, like how many um, stories do you think agents are looking for? Because it it can't just be one children's book, it needs to be several that you have ready to go, I guess, because the process is so much quicker because they're shorter, right? Right. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think it's, I think it's really personal to the agent. Like I think, especially an agent like mine she handles the whole realm of all books <laughs> from board book to adult so so she's probably i don't know if she has a specific number in her head but i'm sure she's you know making sure she's in all the places and picture books are a little more i don't want to say work heavy but as far as managing printing and and all of that and researching you know which editors and Publishing houses are looking for author illustrators. So I think it varies. I do know that I just saw an editor at a publishing house that my agent and I were looking at, had recently put on her manuscript wish list. She said, We are now open to 40 books, taking on enough that we are printing 40 picture books a year, as opposed to the 25 that we were printing last year and the years prior so if you imagine there's probably six or eight publishers in that publishing house so if they're doing 40 you know divided by six or eight then it's it's only a few and there are some publishing houses that only do you know two to five picture books a year and in picture book world from the time an author signs a contract author and or illustrator signs a contract with Publishing house. It's two full years until that book is on the shelf. So, so they're they're not only working with those two books in that year. They're also now you know backlogging, and they might have eight or ten books, but that's for the next you know chunk of time. So,
0: yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, in, yeah. it is still it still takes two years for for a picture book to be on the yes, shelf. Yes,
1: now with the the book I did with Crystal, she's a celebrity. So she's opting to, you know, to, she had her management team work with her on, you know, the publishing aspect of it. So she had kind of the built-in management that most people go to a publisher for. Mm -hmm. So, so they published through Amazon and that was much quicker, obviously for that reason. But, um, but typically, yeah, it's like, it's like two full years.
0: Oh, I'm still so excited for you about, uh, (laughs) You know, I mean what a what a joy that must have been to to be
1: asked to illustrate her book. <laughs> it it really was. And it was one of those things where, you know, you just kind of virtually connect with someone and and we really connected. And the book is not only, you know, it's called My Mama is a Rock Star. And I've been an at-home mom for the whole life of all of my children. So that was a big deal for me too. I loved that message that all moms are rock stars. But it also has an adoption twist to it. So I just connected with her on that aspect as well. So so Fantastic. yeah, it was a lot of fun.
0: yeah, that's amazing. And so how about this YA novel? You you mentioned that you think your home is picture books or, or children's books. So that's kind of at the the very far end of, of yes. kids' books, right? Yeah. So yes. what what is that book all about?
1: So it's funny, that book came while I was in the midst of doing edits and stuff for the adult romance novels. And I, it's going to sound really weird and I've never heard another author say this, but I just imagined if I was going to pick a book that had one, a one word title, what would that word be? And it instantaneously, the word shift came into my head. There was no rhyme or reason. I don't know why. And I started to think about all the literal and figurative meanings of that one word. And it could be, you know, like scientific. There's shifts in the plates of the earth. You can also shift a car, but then you can shift your thinking. And so I started to think of how many different ways do we in a teenager's life have to shift something because of an exterior reason? and it turned into a road trip romance. So currently this book has been in my hands and on my computer and in a file over the last 10 years. And I recently fully dumped the entire first probably five versions of it and started a whole new one. So it's not as heavy on the romance like as far as The romance isn't the story. There is a bit of romance in it where before it was a a YA romance. But the storyline is, um, there's a cult theme to it. Um, It's a teenager who is escaping a cult, but not escaping in the sense of running away, very similar to the Amish Rumspringa, where they get a freebie and they can, I don't know if you know anything about the Amish, They have a certain amount of time, and they can do whatever, and then they come back to the church. So it's that sort of vibe, and um, there's a lot of twists and turns on the way, and there's a lot of tragedy that shifts her direction. So I'm really excited about the way it's turning out and the way I had to engineer the reasoning behind this Rumspringa type of thing in this made-up cult that I have <laughs> and it's, it's really turning into so much more than it ever was and I really the reason I had to put it away was because I was so locked into what it was and I got stuck and I, I couldn't get the characters to the next space because I was stuck but I was so thinking that that was the end-all be-all and that setup of the storyline needed to stay that way and as soon as I tossed it it's like something dumped us the actual story that I'd never, the parts of it that I never thought of before. So I have a beta reader who is very open to like, I can send her one paragraph, I can text it and she'll be like, yeah, that's great or no, you know, but I have that on hold. When I got the agent, I started revamping some picture books. So the YA one is on hold. It's not called shift, but that's just the word that, in fact, right now it's untitled but that's just the word that started the ball rolling.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's really interesting. It sounds to me like that, I mean, maybe it wasn't the the working title, but just something that you referred to it as, is the shift. Mm-hmm. And that the idea sprung from that one word. That's really, really interesting.
1: The way I fit it was she was in it for a different reason, leaving home, and she was going to drive cross-country. And then to in- introduce this romantic person into... It just, in these days, 10 years ago, I probably didn't think that much about it, but currently to have a young girl driving cross country and say, come on, get in my car with me to a young man she just never known didn't seem like, you know, appropriate mm-hmm. <laughs> in, yeah. in the way the world is working today. So I still had to try to figure out the forced Compatible, like they, I needed to have someone else forced to be near her. You know what I mean? So, so I figured that out in a different way, other than her driving a car. Mm -hmm. So,
0: yeah. And it's interesting too that, um, I mean, I, it's completely relatable about being stuck. I have recently been dealing with that where I'm, I'm stuck. I can't move forward because, like, I know in my head how I see things but I'm reaching a point where I just can't get from A to B you know what I mean and so yeah. it kind of forces you to to rethink or or shift your thinking about right. the, the story the plot um, and how you're going to get your characters to where you want to be and you know sometimes that does involve a complete different storyline or you know different elements that you add in and it's not a fun place to but at the same time, you know, if you stick with it and and brainstorm, for example, then you can you can definitely work with it and, and get work through it, I should say. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. It's the first time I've had to do that. I've I've always heard authors say, you know, I totally trashed the whole thing and started over. And I thought, <laughs> no, yeah. I don't have the attention to do that. <laughs> I, there's no way I could do that. And but in this case, I knew I had to. If I wanted yeah. to actually ever write the story, I had to get into a whole new mindset so yeah so it worked
0: yeah awesome that's great yeah. so what is it do you think about these different areas so you you've written romance you're you have been working on a YA novel and the picture books what is it about each of these things that you really really love
1: I've always been a storyteller I've always been the person that you know if you're at a family gathering and somebody wants to oh remember that story about so-and-so oh have Shell tell it I don't even know why i just love to tell stories and i retell them often enough that my family reminds me that they've heard it 10 times and i don't need to say it anyway so it's in one way it's an outlet for me to have full freedom to tell stories um but i think as most authors will tell you there's a part of yourself in every story doesn't necessarily mean that it's biographical but um there are parts of you in the story so The Falling Forward series was inspired by an abusive situation that I was in in college, but it's not, like I said, not biographical, but it was a story that I felt was timely. It was a story that I wanted out of me, you know what I am Like kind of, it was cathartic, but all I did was, um, you know, you take, there's a certain structure of abuse and grooming and all of that. And then I built a fictional story around the structure that I experienced so so that was something that I felt like reaching out you know and that was a college storyline so I was thinking about you know girls going off to college and, and what are some red flags that if they read this book they could you know kind of understand that so that's that's one aspect of why I write and then I also am a huge live music fan so the second or the the fourth book which is a standalone when i lied was inspired i literally wrote the entire storyline in my brain at the 1975 concert there was something going on and i was trying to figure out how what what is the story behind this why would this and i was watching the the singer on stage in the band and i made up an entire story about why the lead singer just appeared so broken and sad and i couldn't figure out you're living your dream you're on a stage and he wasn't crying or anything, but he just seemed very dark and was not what I expected in his personality. And so I made a whole story, started writing it the next day. And then the children's books, you know, I'm just literally a kid at heart. I don't ever feel like I'm a grown-up. So, you know, it's the, I just like to, I just have that mindset, the playful, you know, what if, to the point that my husband has stopped asking me what I'm thinking when we're on long drives because sometimes what I tell him is so out in left field that he's just like, I don't even know how someone's brain does that. <laughs> Why did and I it's I that always, again? <laughs> yeah, right. So he finally said, I'm not asking that question anymore. And it's not dark stuff. It's just, you know, something that is so far beyond what he thought I was gonna say. And yeah. then I can explain to him, the path that got, I saw a tree back there that had a bucket hanging on it. And that made me think, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he's just like, my gosh, your brain never shuts off. (laughs) So part of it is that my brain doesn't shut off. And why would I keep, I just have a, like, I have to get them. I have to get the stories out. There's more room for more of them. I can't just keep replaying the same ones in my head. So as long as they're coming, I'm going to rewrite them.
0: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Oh, I totally, totally relate to that. (laughs) my brain never shuts up either. It's on, it's just constantly in motion and, and I do the same thing anything, you know, any number of things that I see or experience in, in any given day, it's like, oh, what if?
1: Yeah. (laughs) I said, we were driving somewhere that there were these big rolling hills and I said, what if, The hills were actually monsters, but it was the tops of their heads that we're seeing. So they would lift up their head and there'd be trees hanging from their eyelashes and they'd have to bat their eyelashes to get the tree. And my husband was like, no, (laughs) we're done, you know, turn up the radio. But it's stuff like that. It's a what if is always in my head. Yeah.
0: Yep. I think that is where that kind of divide happens between the writers and the non-writers. The non-writers yeah. just don't get
1: it. <laughs> no, right, right. And there are people, you know, they say, which I've never experienced, but that they can't picture something in their head. They have no visual yeah.
0: in their mind. And I... I can't imagine. I can't, I can't fathom not having
1: that. That's right. that's how I see all of my stories. Yeah. And that's yeah. how I thought every human was until yeah. I think it was a TikTok. Where somebody was saying, Do you know people picture stuff in their head? And I thought, Whoa. <laughs> Wait, people don't? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've never experienced that. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs>
0: so though for those listeners who are writing in various genres or age categories, what would your advice be for keeping them in the right mindset at the right time, depending on what they're working on?
1: Um I've for me personally, I've taught in many different capacities for my entire adult life. I was a high school art teacher. I've done um, elementary school art camps. I've done, you know, so there are always, and I have three kids, so there are always kids in my life. And the fact that paired with a brain that is more kid-like than adult, you really have to make sure that the story that you're writing, that you have experience with that age group, which, I mean there are people that you know work in a corporate world and and might not have day-to-day interactions with children but there there's just different different opportunities out there that you could immerse yourself in the age group that whether it's volunteering you know for something or or getting a second job or sitting at your sister's house who has a lot of kids or so and sometimes I will go back to I'll pull out all of my, I still have all of my picture, my favorite picture books from my childhood that are just hanging on by a thread. Um, I have them, I have my kids' favorite picture books. And I've even, for the YA stuff, I've gone back to, I was always a journal keeper. So I've gone back to my journals and, you know, like how I would phrase things or what I would say, obviously vernacular changes, you know, from decade to decade, but, but where you have to really be aware of that your brain is working like a 14-year-old, if that's who you're writing for. Um, It's very obvious to a reader, especially when you're writing for children, they are the first ones that are going to pick up. um, Nobody my age would say that. Right. So it really has to be authentic. So unless, like, honestly, I am immature in the sense that I find humor and things teens do that my husband has no time for you know so i th- i think some of it is a natural thing but i think that's not to say that it has to come natural to be a good writer in a certain genre you just might have to put really mindful work into it and, and really focus on how you're going to get that experience so that your writing's authentic
0: right yes excellent advice excellent and i love that you go to your your own journals from when you were that age because that's a great way I've heard I when you were saying that I was trying to remember someone that I heard does that so that they were able to get into that that mindset and I think that's a Mm -hmm. fantastic way because I mean you obviously know and trust that writer because that was yourself at one time so you know that it's authentic and you can very I think it would be easily easy to pick up the authenticity and pick up that that change in voice because your voice at that age is very different than your voice now.
1: Right, so and I way. also think you pick up on things like when I was writing the Falling Forward series I was going back to my college journals mm-hmm. and I was picking up on things where I have the benefit of hindsight that I you know I I and friends of mine whose scenarios I wove into the stories we didn't have the benefit of hindsight. It was the end of the world. Like literally whatever, this tragedy that was happening or or this breakup or the cheating or whatever was happening that I can't see beyond that as a 19 year old. Right. Like that's, I I will quit college and my whole life is over right now. Like now as an adult, that is not how I would handle a situation because I have you know, the benefit of being more mature and Mm -hmm. seeing how, you know, things ebb and flow in your life and you just got to hang in there, you know. So that's the biggest thing that I got from those journals was where my mind was because I'd only lived that many years. Yeah. And I I think as an adult, sometimes things are inferred in what we write that a a teenager wouldn't infer that Mm -hmm. because they hadn't lived out the end of the scenario.
0: Right. So you're also a mom of three, as you've said. What have you found has worked best for you in terms of making sure that you get that writing time in while raising your family?
1: When I wrote my novels, all three of my kids were in school. So um, it was six to eight hours a day that they were gone that I could get errands, run, make dinner and have time for writing. Currently, two of my kids are grown adults and out of the house and live in different states. And I have a very social 17-year-old high school junior who doesn't love being at home and is always out with his friends. So, (laughs) I mean, not doesn't love being at home, but his friends are way more fun than mom. So he's choosing (laughs) to be social rather than being home. Um, So he is here when he's hungry and needs to sleep, you know. So my days are really open now, but when there were situations like summer break, and everyone was in my house, I had to treat it like a job and I might not get writing in every day, but I could schedule something based on, you know, these are the nights that my husband doesn't have evening meetings. So when he gets home, I'm out the door sitting in a, you know, a cafe or a library or somewhere. Um, Because if you just, anybody who's a writer knows when the idea hits, if you wait too long you might still remember the idea but the passion behind it yeah isn't isn't going to translate onto the page like it would if you could get it in that moment so mm-hmm. so there were times that you know there was no dinner on the table because i got into a, a, a writing jag and everyone was kind of leaving me alone and i could just sit for a little bit and write but you you really if you really want to do it as a job you have really have to treat it as a job so yeah. right now i'm just fortunate that my l- life is the least busy it's ever been. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Well, great, great way to fill the time is to get those creative juices flowing. That's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And then my last question for you today is, can we talk about how you got your agent? Like we kind of briefly touched on that before, but I mean like querying and pitching and all of those things. um, It's something that is obviously very heavily talked about in the writing community So how did you get connected with your agent and what tips do you have for writers who are currently in those dreadful, but sometimes fun? I find them fun, the query trenches.
1: (laughs) So I stopped counting rejections, I think, when I was at like 150 some. So I have collected a significant amount of rejections and I have always had the mindset that every no gets me closer to a yes. So if I wasn't getting any no's, I wasn't trying hard enough to get a yes, because, you know, and and nothing in the publishing industry is quick. So so patience. And I know it's really hard when you're really excited about something and rejections can really get you down. And I think that when I was doing the picture books before my novels and my kids were little, little and I was explaining to them what I was doing they would get sad when I, that was back literally when you were doing it by mail, like snail mail. So we would go to the mailbox and I, there'd be a self-addressed stamped envelope in there. And I'd be like, dang, because somebody would have called me if they, you know, were interested in this. And my kids would say, why aren't you sad? So I came up with this, well, I'm just checking off all the, I have a big box of nose, you know, A grid and I'm just checking off another no. So I'm collecting them. The more no's I get, the closer. So I had to spin it for a positive and that works for my personality too. I just signed with my agent in September. So I haven't had her for that long, but I heard through a writer friend and through the writing grapevine that you hear things from that a agency was, had just hired a handful of agents because they were getting more submissions than their current agents could handle. So, it's always been in the back of my head that if I could find a brand new agent who is building a list, they are going to be taking on more than a handful of people, you know, rather than someone that has 40 clients and is only taking one. Um so, I've always been on the lookout. I've done Google searches, Um, so it was just perfect timing because when I found that out, I went right to the computer and looked up the agency and there was only one of those agents also was doing children's books. So it was a no brainer. And I, I sent her, you know, a typical query and, and the pages because with picture books, that's usually what it is. You query and since they're 500 words they're you just send it right in the email. And she called me a couple of days later and asked me for a zoom call. And I wasn't expecting the couple days later thing because normally you get an automated response that says if you don't hear back in six to eight weeks, then never mind. <laughs> so, but because she was building her list, she was just as hungry for clients as I was to match with an with an agent. So in that aspect, that was fast. But I'm have been writing and submitting books off and on for since 2005. So there's, I'm not a published uh, children's book author yet. <laughs> so that, that's your, you know, hopefully it doesn't take everyone this long, but I've, you know, I've dabbled in other genres that, that kept me busy and I wasn't doing children's books. but But my biggest piece of advice is just remembering that nothing happens quickly and to think about it as a matchmaking scenario. Because you don't just want any agent, you want an agent that loves your story as much as you do, because then they're gonna champion that story. An agent or editor, because some people prefer to go the editor route. It's like a labyrinth, like the, it's a needle in a haystack. How many of them there are, and you have this one story. So making connections, networking, going to conferences, and so many of them are online. Now you don't even have to travel. All of that has really helped me because I've had different people say, oh, well, you know, I've worked with so-and-so and it's an agency I've never even heard of. Or, a, an, you know, a publisher that's new that I didn't even know existed that is, you know, somehow something that would be a good match. I've also read that more than 80% of writers that start a book never finish it because they get so bogged down with, with the negatives. Mm -hmm. And so I've always tried to spin it in a way that makes me hungrier for it. And think that I want to be one of the 20%. I don't want to be in the 80% that quits. I've had moments where I said I was done, you know, for whatever reason, my my brain doesn't let me be done. (laughs) So I, so if you don't quit, you will get to that end result. And you just can't put a time limit on it for yourself because if your story is that important to you, then you, and I mean, there's something to be said about the options now that we have to self-publish. If, it, mm-hmm. if it's just a matter of documenting something, you know, and, and maybe agents, you know, you don't have enough following or depending on what your, you know, if, what your story is, that's not usually a thing except in nonfiction, but um,
0: right.
1: there's a lot of options out there. I personally need the structure of traditional publishing. I've done it both ways. I I had a publishing situation fall through and I was already writing the book and, mm. and ended up self-publishing. So I've done it both ways. I've enjoyed it both ways, but I'm not a, a structured enough person to make my own deadlines and not keep moving them. So I, I really need that structure. But just keeping in mind that you won't get anywhere if you don't go anywhere so yeah. you just have you, you you can't publish if you're not writing and each draft I've learned something yeah so even the ones that I threw out for this YA that I'm working on I learned there's a whole bunch that because of those drafts this story is where it is I could never have started with this story so if I would have quit on the first draft and never gone through Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be excited about a story that is as good as it is because I didn't do all the legwork. Right. So yeah, yeah,
0: it's never, never a waste. And I've said that so many times on the podcast before, it is never a waste. Even if you never publish that book, even if you change the story five times, you've learned something about not just the story and your characters, but about your writing as well. And that's only strengthening the more you go.
1: Absolutely. I I always see it in my head. Like, I don't know if I have the synesthesia thing, you know, where you can see concepts as shapes, but I always see it as a staircase. So each of your drafts is a rung on a ladder or a a step on a staircase. And we don't know how high that ladder or staircase is, but there is a top. Yeah, there's, you know, it's not never ending. So, so everything you're learning, you're standing on that when you take that next step. And that's the visual in my visual brain. (laughs) That's
0: awesome. I love that. I love that. Um, And I just have one quick question that came up when you're talking about querying and things like that. When you when you were writing your query, did you include illustrator notes or or art notes in your query?
1: I did not. And what I did was um, so far, the book that I'm currently one of the children's books that I'm working on, you wouldn't even understand the the actual manuscript if I wasn't like if there were no images, because a lot of the story is the images and the words are kind of the humor of what's so okay. it wouldn't really make sense. Normally, my books are not super descriptive, but it's very obvious what's happening. So when I sent that other one to my book coach, I did have to put the art notes in so she understood what was going on. But typically I just send the query and rarely, sometimes um, an editor will request to upload a PDF of your book dummy, Mm -hmm. which is a mock-up book with words on the pages and you just send the PDF file so they can flip through not often is that the case often it will say give us a link to a website or or a digital portfolio and then they use that to decide whether they want to see a dummy and then they would give you time to to prepare a dummy if you didn't already have it but you're supposed to have it so that when they ask for it you have it right on hand so
0: right and that is like the dummy is the words and some kind of graphic illustration
1: Form. Yes. And going, you know, through the grapevine, you listen to, you know, different podcasts and stuff. What they're looking for when they ask for a dummy is a full color designed cover and just an image form, not an actual physical thing. And three, two, some say two, some say three fully colored words in the space. They're going to be illustrations. And then the rest can literally, literally be pencil sketches. Okay. And it can literally be stick figures because they can get an idea for yeah. the continuity of how you took this character on these three pages and they look the same, but they're doing like, which isn't easy as an illustrator, you know, you know what a character looks like straight on, but now if she's climbing a tree, what does her nose look from from the side? And yeah, so there's a lot of that, that they want to be able to see that this character is moving in space and you can still tell it's the same character.
0: Yeah. And so obviously yeah. that's only for people that are author illustrators, right? Because yeah. if you're only the author, you wouldn't have yep. those images. And with the illustrator notes or the art notes, how does that actually look? Like if I'm looking at a query or or whatever it is, how does that look? How, how do you put them in?
1: Um, there's probably multiple ways you could do it. I tend to use parentheses and write under the words that would be on that page. If there is a reason that, the illustration is pertinent for you to understand. I will just in parentheses put something and then at the, like in the heading, it will just have the word art notes in parentheses right. up by my name and contact information and all of that so that they, cause I also have to put pen name. So it'll yeah. say pen name and then art notes, but I'm sure there are, cause I've actually, I've never sent art notes to like in a query. Okay. So that's how I did it for my book coach. If I was doing it in a query, I would actually make sure I knew I was doing it right. So currently for my book coach, I just did it in parentheses and told her that that's what it was, but I would, I would have to double check that there's not some, you know, industry standard for how to do it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got all technical on you there for a second. (laughs) That's Awesome. Great. Well, Michelle, thank you so much. This has been very, very um, enlightening because I don't write in the picture book world. So it's very, it's interesting to, to hear these, these different aspects of of creative writing. So it's been a joy having you here. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you
0: for having me. It was fun to be here. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget I'm hosting another Literary Agent Ask Agent segment at the end of January with Emmy Nordstrom Higdon from Westwood Creative Artists. You can send me your querying and publishing questions until January 10th. I have a Twitter post that you can reply to right there, or you can DM me on Twitter at underscore badasswriters or on Instagram at badasswriters_podcast. underscore podcast you can also head to my website at kathleenfox.com contact and email me there also remember you can send me a voice memo with your book recommendations or shout outs to people that have really helped you on your publishing journey and i'll air them on the show So there are more details about that on my website as well. Just head up to the Badass Writers Podcast tab at the top menu. If you have any book recommendations or shoutouts that you want to get in for my year-end wrap-up episode that airs on the 30th, please get those sent in as soon as possible. Only one more episode before the end of the year. That'll be happening this Friday, December 30th. And until then, keep being badass.